five, four, three, two, one. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Inside You, the college sports podcast. I'm your host, Saviotic, and we are back for another huge episode of Power 5 Monday, even with it having been so-called Cupcake Week in college football this last week, and still a lot of intrigue. Probably the biggest thing being West Virginia losing to Oklahoma State in a huge loss, which has big implications for the college football playoff. If you're a member of the Big Ten right now, you are licking your chops with the Mountaineers' loss, knowing that now the only real threat to your conference getting into the college football playoff is potentially Oklahoma. So let's get into it. As always, first things first, I was right and I was wrong. I was right that Notre Dame would defeat Syracuse. Final score, they're 36-3. The Orange blanked for most of the game. Fortunately, they were able to get a late-game field goal to avoid being shut out. Ian Book, 292 yards throwing, two touchdowns. Dexter Williams, 13 carries for 74 yards. And if you are a fan of Syracuse, you are concerned about starting quarterback Eric Dungey. He left with an injury. That is one of just many injuries that has kind of plagued Dungey's career at Syracuse. So you're hopeful he returns after the game and today. Head coach Dino Babers said that he appeared better and he was kind of day-to-day going into their game this weekend against Boston College. So we'll see what happens with that. Then I was wrong that Iowa State would defeat Texas. Final score there, 24-10. The Longhorns defense stepping up and coming up with five sacks for the game against Iowa State quarterback Brock Purdy. Sam Ellinger, one touchdown running and one touchdown through the year. But if you're a Longhorns fan, you have to be concerned about him re-injuring that shoulder, his AC joint. After the game, it was determined that that joint was inflamed. Remember, he initially hurt that shoulder in the Longhorns game against Oklahoma. But fortunately, with the Longhorns taking on Kansas this week, a game which, if they win, they'll go to the Big 12 championship game. They have essentially another bye week, and I think Shane Bichelle can pull off the victory there. For the Longhorns, Brock Purdy for the Cyclones, 10 for 27 passing. And the big sign there being the negative 11 rushing yards he posted. And with David Montgomery only available for half the game, he came up with the only touchdown for the Cyclones. Then I was right that Wisconsin would defeat Purdue. A wild game, 47-44 in triple overtime. That's without Alex Hornibrook for the Badgers. Jonathan Taylor, though, doing his best, 327 yards. An absurd 9.7 yard average. And he comes up with the game-winning touchdown. David Blau for the Boilermakers throwing for four touchdowns. And the real story here being Jack Cohn, 16 for 24 and showing serious improvement after he was essentially thrown to the Wolves against Penn State a couple of weeks ago. He continues to be impressive. And the Badgers coming back from being down 27-13 to pull off the victory. They're a huge win for Paul Chris' team. As they look to kind of salvage the rest of a season that's really been disappointing so far. Then, I was wrong that Oklahoma State would lose to West Virginia. Final score there, 45-41. to The Cowboys were down 17.5 but continued to fight hard. Taylor Cornelius, five touchdowns, including the game winner, to Tylon Wallace. And this Oklahoma State team now has not only beat Boise State, who looks like they have a chance to represent the Mountain West if they the Mountain West Mountain Division, if they beat Utah State this week, they beat Texas, and now they beat West Virginia. And I expect to see the Cowboys ranked in the next college football playoff rankings this week, probably at 25, we might guess. So huge win for Gundy's team. 
this has definitely been a difficult year for Gundy. There was a lot of made out of the transfer of Jalen McCleskey and kind of the fallout from that and Gundy's staff telling reporters that they would not be able to ask questions about it, risking the penalty of being banned for the rest of the season. But fortunately, he turned things around on the field, and this is a very impressive performance from this team. And I think they're going to be a huge force in the Big 12 next year. So then I was right that UCF would defeat Cincy. Final score, they're 38-13. to And the real story here being the Golden Knights defense holding Desmond Ritter and Michael Warren to a less-than-stellar performance. Mackenzie Milton continued to impress. He had a big th- throw to Adrian Killens Jr. that really broke the game open. And the score could have been a lot wider. There was a very crucial play, third down play, where Milton's pass to their tight end was catchable, a little bit off, but still catchable. He dropped it. And had they gotten that one, likely would have had another to score to this one. So with the Golden Knights hosting game day, they showed up, got the job done. And they're now undefeated going into what will be their last game of the season against South Florida this weekend. Also, if you're Central Florida, just to restate, they did lose that game against North Carolina because of Hurricane Florence. So they will finish, assuming they win this weekend, like I'd expect them to against South Florida 11-0. So then I was wrong that Tulane, that excuse me, that Houston would fail to cover against Tulane. They absolutely blew out the green waves. This game very much got out of hand early with Houston getting ahead and never really looking back. A lot was made out of Ed Oliver and head coach Major Applewhite's flap regarding his wearing a, a jacket only reserved for eligible players in the game. I don't see that being a big deal. It was announced today that Oliver will likely play against Memphis if he is healthy. Remember, he's been out the last few games dealing with that bruised knee. But if he is going to play the last game of the season for the Cougars, that shows me that whatever happened there was just a momentary flare-up. The real story being the loss of starting quarterback Derek King for the Cougars. He's been having a very impressive season in Kendall Bryles' system. He's now gone for the rest of the year with the torn meniscus. But the Cougars still likely to represent their side of the American in the conference championship game against UCF. So then I was right that Nebraska would defeat Michigan State without Brian Lewerke. The Spartans' offense continued to struggle Nebraska hit three fourth quarter field goals to pull off the victory here. And just another impressive victory for Scott Frost as he looks to continue to build that program and move forward. Then I was wrong that Virginia Tech would defeat Miami. Final score there, 38 to 14. And Cozy Perry, after being an up and down year so far in the opportunities he's had, had a better game, 21 for 34, two touchdowns through the air, one running. Cameron Davis added another two, and Miami snapping a four-game losing streak and getting back on the right track. Then, I was right that Temple would defeat South Florida. The Owls were down 17-0 at halftime, but they came from behind on the back of five second-half turnovers. This is the fourth straight loss for Charlie Strong's team, and Temple very much the number two team in that American Athletic Conference Eastern Division right behind Central Florida. But unfortunately, we won't get to see them play each other again, but... Still very impressive what the Owls are doing. Then, I was wrong that Tennessee would defeat Missouri. Final score there, 50-17, to and Drew Locke was just an animal in this game. 21 for 30, 257 passing yards. And if you're a Vols fan, you have to be concerned about both starting quarterback Jarek Guarantano and Marquez Calorie suffering injuries. Their day-to-day going into 
Tennessee's last game of the season against Vanderbilt this weekend. Then I was right that Fresno State would defeat San Diego State. Final score there, 23-14. For the Aztecs, both Ryan Agnew and Kristen Chapman saw time under center. Unfortunately, neither was able to lead the Aztecs to the victory here. And Fresno State now is going to the Mountain West Championship game where they'll represent the West Division and will either play Boise State or Utah State, depending on who wins that game this weekend. Then I was wrong that Arizona State would defeat Oregon. Final score, the 31-29. to Justin Herbert, 262 passing yards and two touchdowns, and they were able to hold off a Sun Devils comeback. Could have been Herbert's last game in Austin Stadium. We're waiting to see whether he decides to go to the NFL draft or return for what would be his senior year in Eugene. I expect him to go, but who knows what happens there. And with them having Oregon State this weekend, very likely that they pull that one off too. So then I was right that UCLA would pull off the upset over USC. Final score there, 34-27. to And this was a game where the Trojans just continued to struggle like they have all season. Starting quarterback JT Daniels had two crucial interceptions. Also, the last play of the game kind of shut off what we've seen from all year was him reacting rather than reading the defense and kind of making decisions with the Trojans needing a crucial first down. Not only did he throw to high school teammate Amon Ross St. Brown, who was short of the yardage, but he also had double coverage on him, a man underneath him and above him, and would have been likely short of the first down had he even caught the pass. And JT Daniels, who came in with so much positivity and so much hype behind him because of his decision to forego his senior year of high school, just continued to look flustered and struggle for the Trojans. Also, the Trojans' defense not getting the job done, allowing 289 rushing yards to Joshua Kelly for the Bruins. And behind Kelly's strength and the occasional pass from Wilton Spates, the Bruins pull off the upset there at the Rose Bowl in what will be a huge signature win for Chip Kelly's team as he looks to build legitimacy and that program. So then I was wrong that Virginia would defeat Georgia Tech. Final score there, 30-27 to in overtime. Georgia Tech winning their fourth straight. And Paul Johnson's team looking better and better each week, especially with all the flack they dealt early on and with some people saying it might be time for Johnson to go. Huge win for the Yellow Jackets, who will now look to upset Georgia this week in their rivalry game, winning that one on a 40-yard field goal in overtime. And then finally, I was wrong that Hawaii would lose to UNLV. Final score, they're 35-28 after Trevon Cordero came in and replaced Cor McDonald and came in with three touchdowns off the bench. So 7-8 last week, my first losing week of the season, but fortunately only one game under 500 there. So that moves us to I was right and wrong, part two, the basketball version. Starting off with the 2K Empire Classic that was Friday and Saturday night of this past weekend. I was right that Iowa would defeat Oregon. Final score there, 77-69. Iowa very much showing they're a balanced team. Jordan Bohannon finishing with 60 points. Bull Bull certainly doing his best at pouring on 14 points, a block, and the most impressive sequence of the game when he had a block, dribbled the entire length of the floor, and then swished in a very nice two-pointer. But unfortunately, Ducks falling short there. Then I was wrong that Syracuse would defeat UConn. Final score there, 83-76. to This was a huge win for Dan Hurley's team. The fans in the Madison Square Garden were, came alive. They were chanting his name, just excited. Very much an impressive victory for him as he looks to build that program and get away from some of the tumultuous nature that occurred under Kevin Ollie. Certainly for the Syracuse, they had their opportunities, but just way too much one-on-one ball 
A lot of shots were forced in the second half as the Cuse looked to come back from that halftime deficit they faced against UConn. And most impressive, Alterique Gilbert for the Huskies, 16 points. And really, when the Huskies needed someone to take a big shot, he did it coming up with a huge three-pointer and a huge victory for the Huskies, like I said. Then, I was right that Gonzaga would defeat Texas A&M. Final score there, 94-71. to Zach Norville, 22 points for the Huskies. Rue Hachimura adding an 18. For the Aggies, saving on flag, 18 points. The Zags winning that game without killing Tylee as he continues to struggle with an ankle injury. Certainly a big, impressive victory for the Zags going into the Mallee Invitational, which I'll get to in a little bit. Then I was wrong that Syracuse would defeat Iowa in the championship game. Rather, Iowa defeated UConn. Final score there, 91-72. to Dan Hurley being ejected from the game. Still a little bit unclear what exactly he said, but with the moment winning down on it, looking like the Huskies were going to lose, he kind of went and crouched over by the scorer's table. He must have said something regarding the refs, and that resulted in his ejection from the game. Iowa, very impressive. Looking like they'll be a force in the Big Ten. Luke Garza, the MVP of the Madison, excuse me, of the 2K Empire Classic. I don't think anyone would have thought that going into the weekend. And after having watched their performances against Oregon and UConn, and then watching Indiana struggle to deal with Arkansas's pressure, losing that one 72 to 73, I really am impressed with this Hawkeyes team. And looking at kind of the Big Ten this year, which I think we're going to have a lot of parity between Indiana, Michigan State, Iowa, and Wisconsin, certainly the Hawkeyes could be a legitimate threat to win their division and rep- and potentially the Big Ten this year. So then I was right regarding all of the initial games of the Maui Invitational, Auburn beating Xavier, final score there, 88-79. to the Tigers, though, needing to do it in overtime, certainly not what Bruce Pearl's team was looking for, given that Xavier had 22 turnovers for the game. Harper having 25 points, really the story of this Auburn team. Whenever they needed a big three, he came up with it. He had a couple of huge dunks, really impressive getting to the paint. All night long, it seemed like the Tigers were able to get points in the paint and They certainly got the job done. For the Musketeers, Ryan Wellich had 17 points. But if you are Bruce Poole, you have to be a little bit concerned that even with 22 turnovers, you took overtime for you to put away the Musketeers. And conversely, if I'm Travis Steele, head coach of the Musketeers, I'm a little bit happy about the fact that even with my team struggling so much with those 22 turnovers, having to start our offense consistently at the half-court line, and really having just a lot of sloppy mistakes in this game, Having your opportunities to win that game just shows you how good the Savior team could potentially be. Then I was right that Duke would defeat San Diego State. Final score there, 90-64. to The trio for the Blue Devils, Barrett 20, Cam Reddish 16, Zion Williamson 13, and a huge windmill dunk. They got out in front of the Aztecs and never really looked back. And now Duke is going to take on Auburn tomorrow. I'll preview that game in a bit. Then in the other side of the bracket, Arizona down 10 points at halftime, coming back and coming from behind to defeat Iowa State 71-66. to Coleman for the 
for the Bearcats having 18 points, Mariel Shayok having 19 for the Cyclones. And this is a very interesting Arizona team. In the past, Sean Miller's teams have always kind of been cornerstoned by one or two top recruits. This team a little bit unknown, but certainly has some grit to them. Maybe this is what Sean Miller needs. Remember, he does come from Xavier. He is used to kind of that hard, defensive, resilient style that he kind of made his name off of. And I'm very excited about this Arizona team with the fight they kind of have. You know, in the past, Miller's teams have kind of struggled whenever they've had to face some adversity and they haven't just been able to rely on their talent. So this Arizona team could certainly be a sleeper in the Pac-12. And then the last game of the day from the Maui Invitational, I was right that Gonzaga would defeat Illinois. Final score, they're 84 to 78. Even with Gonzaga consistently being slightly ahead of the Illinois, this was a back and forth game. Certainly the Illinois had their opportunity at the end. Rue Hachimura, the 23 points and really the game ceiling duck off the turnover for the Zags. And that's going to set up a very interesting day two of the Maui Invitational. So I'll preview those games in a bit. But first things first, let's get into some of the top storylines in college sports right now. Probably the biggest thing that people want to talk about following USC's loss to UCLA is head coach Clay Helton. That's just one of a number of big coaching changes and coaching announcements that happened this weekend. So let's get right into it. Les Miles, as I predicted, I will attach the video link in the show notes. Becoming the new head coach at Kansas. This is after Kansas fired former head coach David Beatty, although he will continue to coach the Jayhawks for the remainder of their season, which should end this weekend against Texas. Certainly not much of a surprise giving Myers and Jeff Long had former connection, having previously worked together at Michigan. But this is now a very intriguing hire for this Jayhawks program that has very much struggled with stagnancy the last few years. You know, initially it was thought that Miles would be brought in to assist the Jayhawks with the $300 million renovation product of Memorial Station. But today, Jeff Long announced that actually that money is going to be put into the program and they're going to look to build it from the ground up. So it should be very interesting. I like this hire, like I said in the video. I think for a program that has been stagnant for them to hire a guy like this who has a big name, who maybe can open up some of that SEC recruiting pipeline and hopefully turn around a program which is going to have much lower expectations than its previous predecessor is a very smart hire. Conversely, I know some people are saying, is this Charlie Weiss part two? And also, what about his offensive schemes? Are they outdated? Has he updated them and made the necessary changes that he's going to need to, especially in the wide open Big 12? I understand both of those things. I think this is a little different for the simple reason that when Charlie Weiss was at Notre Dame, you know, being at Notre Dame with its academic uh, rigorosity, you're not really recruiting like you would at most schools. It's a bit of a harder job. And Weiss was really never much of a head coach. He was always kind of a coordinator who kind of fell into that head coaching role. Miles, on the other hand, has been successful as a head coach. And I think if you're looking for a program that's really been that stagnant, at the very least, he should attract you some higher profile recruits, help you get some big donations, and move this program along to that next step from where they've kind of been all these years. So I like the decision. It will be interesting to see what happens. But if I'm the Jayhawks right now and looking at kind of some of the other coaches available, I think they hit the jackpot in terms of what they need to really get that program moving in the right direction. So then at Colorado, Mike McIntyre was fired following the Buffalo's loss to Utah this last weekend, 30-7 to at home. 
Remember, the Buffalo started the season 5-0. Starting quarterback Steven Montez and LaVishka Chenault, wide receiver, were doing great things. Chenault was looking like a Heisman Trophy candidate, but since then, they've lost six straight. McIntyre was in his sixth season at Colorado, and he even won the Pac-12 South in 2016, but his overall record is only 30-44. and 44. They were 5-7 and seven last year, and they are now 5-6 and six in 2018 with those six straight losses. Not too big of a surprise that McIntyre was fired, given that report started surfacing last weekend that he would be fired. But initially, athletic, the athletic tour kind of put a dampen on some of those rumors. However, since then, following that loss, they have decided to make a change there. And the real kind of factor for me that said that McIntyre might not be long for Buffalo is both of his former coordinators, Brian Lindgren and Jim Levitt, leaving for other programs within the Pac-12, Lindgren going to Oregon State, Levitt going to Oregon. Certainly not a good sign when your coordinators are leaving you for other programs in conference. Speaking of who might replace McIntyre at Colorado, a couple of names have popped up. Mark Helfrich, the former Oregon head coach. I don't know if I think head Helfrich would be a great fit for that program. You know, he had trouble at Oregon where you have that Nike factory behind you. Recruiting is going to be a lot easier. And his tenure did not end well at Oregon, 4-8 and eight in 2016. Although he has spent some time with the Chicago Bears, he's currently their head, co- their offensive coordinator. Maybe he's learned some things since then. He's only 45 years old. But that's a very much a hard sell for me for a guy whose last time on a college sideline really did not go well. Another name that I've heard that's kind of popular is Jeff Tedford, the Fresno State coach. Remember, they've now won the Mountain West West Division two years in a row. They were 10-4 and last year. They're 9-2 and this year with an opportunity to go 10-2 and if they win this weekend. Also, he's previously coached at Cal, but at 57 years old and with him coaching in his alma mater, UNLV, it's a hard sell for me to believe that Tedford would want to leave, especially when he can likely be in for a job at Fresno State for the long term. Does he really want to undergo another rebuilding effort? I don't think so. So that leaves us to Dana Holgerson, certainly a bit of a surprising name, but they're saying that he might be in for a move. He's only 47 years old, and with Will Greer leaving after this year, maybe he decides it's best to move on, avoid the definite letdown year, which will likely be next year. But one of the things that concerns me about this is even with Holgerson being in the Big 12, which isn't quite as cash strapped, excuse me, quite as cash plentiful as some of these other schools, he'd likely have to take a pay cut, and some of his assistants would have to take a pay cut out Colorado. If you're unaware, Colorado is one of the most difficult programs to pay coaches because it is almost entirely funded through state money. That makes it very difficult to get the legislature to up the salaries of coaches. That's one of the big issues that McIntyre had was retaining his assistants because as soon as anyone made a name for themselves, they knew they could get a higher paying, better job elsewhere. So a bit of a difficulty for me to believe that Holgerson will want to undertake the difficulties he's going to face recruiting to Colorado, although granted West Virginia, certainly he had his own challenges trying to recruit there. But that plus the pay cut is a hard sell for me, although he is only 47 years old. And then the name that I think is most likely to get this job, Brian Harrison, Boise State's head coach, only 42 years old. He's been head coach at Boise State for a couple of years now. He has a 51-14 and overall record while at Boise State. 
58 and 19 overall. They were nine and two last year, and this year, excuse me, they have nine and two this year, and they've got a shot to win the Mountain West Mountain title if they defeat Utah State this weekend. That would be the second time in a row and an opportunity to be Mountain West champions two years in a row. Here's a guy who served under Chris Peterson previously. Maybe he likes what Chris Peterson, he's seen from Chris Peterson being able to do at Washington, where, yeah, you're a power five head coach, but the expectations are so much lower than a USC or a Texas or another one of these Bluebird programs that they like kind of the anonymity of being there. So he's my pick to fill that job. We'll see what happens there, though. That moves us along then to USC, my alma mater. Clay Hilton, obviously under fire right now following the Trojan loss to a, at the time, 2-8 and eight UCLA team. This is his fourth season as head coach of the Trojans, his third full-time. He's 32-16 and 16 as a head coach, and he's 5-6 and six so far on a two-game losing streak and likely going to miss out on bowl eligibility this weekend when the Trojans take on Notre Dame. This is a bit of a curious case in that the fan base really has never embraced Helton. He was kind of an okay sure hire following the way Steve Sarkeesian's fallout happened. The school was still trying to get away from the sanctions that had really stunted the growth of that football program. But since then, he's done a decent job. You know, they did win the Rose Bowl two years ago with Sam Darnold under center. Last year, they did win the Pac-12. But then this year, Certainly didn't get off to a great start with those losses to Stanford and Texas. And then since then, things really haven't gotten too much better. Now, while I would love to see the Trojans make a move from Clay Helton, just because I've never been a personal fan of him, frankly, I just don't think he has the personality to deal with a program the size of USC. One of the difficulties here and the reason why I think he has to come back is the contract extension he received in the offseason. In case you're unaware, in the offseason, Athletic Director Lynn Swan thought it best to give Helton a contract extension through the 2023 season. It's believed that he's he's earning right now about $5 million a year, which means he has $25 million left on that extension. Also, to add even more insult to injury, both offensive coordinator T. Martin, who was relieved of play-calling duties a couple of weeks ago, and defensive coordinator Clancy Pendergast both received contract extension the offseason. That means that probably in total, we're looking at about a $30 million buyout, all told, when you factor in the other coaches and staff whose contract which they have bought out as well. And frankly, I just don't see USC making that investment, even with the fan dissatisfaction being as high as it is. Also, one of the other difficulties with this USC job is who do you have to replace Helton if they do decide to make a move? Certainly, there are some intriguing names out there. Jeff Brom at Purdue, Dino Babers at Syracuse, and Mike Leach at Washington State. All people who I think would at least be intrigued with the job. I'd love to see what Brom and JT Daniels could do if the two teamed up. People have said kind of quietly that Brom is a quote-unquote quarterback whisperer with JT Daniels looking so flustered and possibly a bust. I'd like to see somebody come in who really could give him the attention he needs to get back to the previous highest he had while in high school. But would any of these people really be interested in coming to this program right now? You know, Purdue, excuse me, Brom, they're saying, is going to end up at Louisville if he goes anywhere. I think Dino Babers is content at Syracuse. I think they're going to give him another big extension in the offseason. And Mike Leach did just come off an extension with Washington State. And I kind of see him sticking there now. Just And I don't know if the Trojans, the decision makers within 
USC would be willing to kind of deal with such a lightning rod of a coach in Mike Leach. So it's hard for me to really see one of those guys fitting in. Without that clear succession plan, it really doesn't make sense to pay Helton and his staff the kind of money it will require to have someone who in a couple of years people might be begging for them to move on from as well. And now we're paying two former head coaches who aren't in with the program. Lastly on that, I've heard James Franklin as a name who could be interested in the job. I do not buy this at all. You know, last season we heard the same thing with Texas A&M. Franklin eventually actually had to come in and say, hey, I'm from Pennsylvania. We've got one of the top recruiting classes in the country. I'm staying. Similar to this kind of, it was a question of, well, they could pay him so much more money. And some have said, yes, Trace McSorley is leaving. Maybe now is the right time. Still, though, that is a very hard sell for me. And again, I'm not sold completely on Franklin, given the struggles the offense has had this year with the loss of former offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead to Mississippi State. So we'll see what happens there. But I typed out an in-depth article kind of analyzing this whole Clay Helton situation which I will copy and paste into the show notes. But the reality is for the time being, while that buyout remains as lucrative as it's going to be, I just don't see the Trojans making a move there just because of the money. So then Louisville, certainly they have been in a bit of a precarious situation given that they have moved on from former head coach Bobby Petrino. However, since then, Jeff Brom has kind of said that he's content where he's at. They're five and six right now with an opportunity to go bowling for a second year in a row if they beat Indiana this weekend. So that leads us into a situation of who might be best if Brom decides to stay at Purdue. You know, I've said it previously, but maybe Brom has looked over at what Pat Fitzgerald's been able to do at Northwestern and liked what he's seen. You know, they say that Purdue has some of the best facilities in the world. Certainly with the success he's had, that football program will probably only receive more and more investment. And maybe he's content in the situation he has where even if he doesn't have the best players, he likes just kind of the environment he's living in. So Neil Brown, I think, should be the favorite to get that job if Brom decides he doesn't want it. He's the Troy head coach. He's 34-15 and 15 as a head coach there. They're 9-2 and two in 2018. And last year they had that huge upset over LSU. Brom is from, excuse me, Neil Brown is from Kentucky. He played at Kentucky. Certainly, I think it'd be a little bit easier to get him to come home. The second name, which I haven't heard connected, but which I think should be, is Jeff Brom's younger brother, Brian Brom. He was the quarterback's coach at Western Kentucky under Jeff, and he is the offensive coordinator and quarterback's coach at Purdue. He's part of that Brom family. If you can't get the older brother, why not try the younger brother? He's still part of that Louisville Brom family. I think he'd be a good hire for a program that's really struggling and needing direction right now. So those are two names there. And then lastly, the most intriguing program right now without a head coach, or at least a full-time head coach, Maryland. They announced a couple of days ago that they had hired an executive search firm, Parker Executive Search, based in Atlanta, to find their next head coach. Matt Kanata right now is the interim. They're five and six and coming off an Very, very unfortunate overtime loss to Ohio State. And they do have that victory over Texas, who looks like they will play in the Big 12 championship game. And of all the available jobs right now, this one might be the best in terms of just where the program's at with the state of talent. But unfortunately, because of that scandal with Jordan McNair, a lot of people are going to turn away from it. 
A couple of names who I think would be interesting. Don Brown, the Michigan defensive coordinator. This guy does have head coaching experience at the FBS level, but he at least does not at the moment appear interested in being a head coach again, and he is 63 years old. Another guy who I think would be interesting would be Ryan Day, Ohio State's offensive coordinator. He was 3-0 as the interim head coach for the Buckeyes, but very hard for me to believe that they'd be able to sell another Urban Meyer disciple in day to that Maryland fan base, especially with DJ Durkin having been a Meyer disciple. So I just think that connection alone eliminates him. So then that results in maybe Matt Kanata getting the interim tag removed. Certainly Ole Miss has kind of had varying results with that, with what they've done with Matt Luke, but maybe that's the best thing to do right now. Give yourself another year to get away from this Jordan McNair scandal. Let the program kind of shake it out. Let Wallace D. Lowe retire. Find out who the new president's going to be. Give Damon Amson a chance to kind of write things in the athletic department and then move on. Right now, that would be my guess. If they were going to do something, what they do do is they do make Matt Kanata the head coach for at least the foreseeable future. But if not, like I said, I'd love to see them hire Don Brown. This is a guy who's made a name for putting together some of the best defenses in the country which Maryland is going to have to do if they're going to ever compete against those better Big Ten teams. Also, the offense is always about one play away from being able to win a game. They've certainly had their moments. So if they kept Kanata as offensive corner, I think the two-headed monster of Kanata and Brown could be very interesting to, to see. So that moves us along to kind of a bit of a more funny story. Bevo. The Texas's live mascot will not be on the sidelines against Kansas. Kansas has a rule against live mascots. So unfortunately, with the Longhorns looking to pull off a victory and send themselves to the Big 12 title game, they'll have to do so without Bevo's lucky horns. And then moving along to college basketball, Brian Tugs Bowen II was announced today will be suing Adidas for a number of claims, bribery, fraud, laundering. Basically, he's saying that Adidas willfully and negligently tampered with him and committed a number of illegal acts with no concern or regard for him or his eligibility, and they've gotten away scot-free. Certainly an interesting case. I don't see this going beyond potentially a settlement. Also with Brian Bowen Jr., you have to wonder if there might be a case of unclean hands. Certainly he has said repeatedly that he had no idea that his father was paid that $100,000 from Louisville by TJ Gasnola. If they ever did get to discovery, that's something that really would be hard-pressed against him. And looking at Adidas and their liability, certainly a question of whether what these guys were alleged to have done and convicted of in that first pay-for-pay trial was within their scope of employment. It certainly looks that way just from an outside perspective when you detail the grassroots program and how these guys were getting paid for playing on various circuits and club teams and even getting paid to go to certain high schools. But whether there's a legitimate paper trail to prove that and whether they could get the proof they need to really build that case would be hard for me to believe. If it was outside of his scope of employment, these runners, Christian Dawkins, TJ Gasnola, it'd be very hard for Adidas to be liable for that. But really the bigger issue here is I don't think either – Brian Bowen or Zion Williams should be held liable for the punishment of their parents. You know, if either of them commits a crime, their parents don't go to jail. They do. And I think maybe this might be opening up a good middle ground 
for Adidas, where maybe as soon as these guys become prospects, they themselves are looked at as kind of individual spheres separate from their parents. And that might be a way to kind of mediate some of this issue where a lot of times you have an uncle or other quote unquote decision maker being the one who actually results in this player being penalized and losing their eligibility. So certainly going to be interesting to see how this goes along. But like I said, I don't see this getting very far. If this were to go anywhere, probably a settlement that we never end up hearing about. But I like the decision by Brian Tugs Bowen to kind of force the hand of Adidas. We'll see what happens though. Then that moves us along to previewing the top basketball games of the week. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we have the second round on both sides of the Maui Invitational. Duke taking on Auburn. Duke certainly right now the high-flying college basketball rock stars behind that trio of freshmen. They're going to take on Bruce Pearl's Auburn team. Looking at that Auburn game against Xavier, like I said earlier, even with Auburn having forced 22 turnovers, really being in the passing lanes, getting their hands on things, getting out in front, for them to struggle to really put away that Xavier team concerns me. Against Duke, they're going to have to play the game of their lives. And for that reason, I think the Blue Devils take it. Although I will say if Harper continues to play like he did today, this game could be fun and back and forth with potentially Duke only winning by a few baskets. Then in the other winner's brackets game, Arizona taking on Gonzaga. Gonzaga, like I said, still the number three team in the country. A lot of hype when you look at Zach Norvell and Rue Hachimura and some of the other guys on that team. Also, Gino Crandall to me is probably the guy who hasn't received the attention he deserves. This guy is just a gamer. He's all over the place. He's causing steals. He's getting rebounds. He's getting into transition. He's a guy that I just love to watch to play. Lots of energy off the bench for him and this Gonzaga team. But I've got Arizona pulling off the upset here. Even with Gonzaga looking very balanced and being a very tough team and playing in that Mark Few system, I think that they're definitely beatable. And like I said earlier, this Arizona team's resilience certainly does make me think that they're going to do better than Sean Miller teams of the past. And for that reason, I have the Bearcats pulling off the upset in what should be a very fun back and forth game. Then a loser's bracket, we've got Xavier taking on San Diego State. I've got Xavier winning that one there. San Diego State, a lot of athletes. But this Xavier team, even with losses now to Wisconsin and Auburn, is still very talented. If they can just put it together, minimize the turnovers, they should get the job done. And in the second game, I've got Illinois defeating Iowa State. Illinois now, similar to Xavier, two tough losses to Gonzaga and Georgetown a week ago, but certainly Andres Felis and co, very fun team to watch. They come out energetic and they work hard every night. I think they beat an Iowa State team that's just a little bit less talented than them, although that should still be another fun game. Then that moves us along to the finals Wednesday. I've got Duke over Arizona, likely a blowout there as I expect Duke to get into transition early and never really look back. And then in a non-Maui Invitational game, Wisconsin taking on Stanford. Stanford, a bit of a question mark going into this game, given that their game against Wofford this last weekend was canceled due to the California fires. The last time we saw them, they lost to North Carolina 90-72. Ethan Happenko, like I said, had that big win over Xavier a couple weeks ago. He continues to show off his increasingly well-rounded game, and I think they get the job done here over the Cardinals. So that moves us along to college football. I know this is feast week for college basketball, but in my opinion, it's feast week for college football as well. Lots of fun rivalry games all week. On Thanksgiving, we have the annual Egg Bowl between Mississippi State and Ole Miss. Mississippi State favored by 10.5 there. 
They're coming off a 52-6 victory over Arkansas. Old Miss losing to Vandy 36-29 in overtime. And even with Old Miss having all that hype coming into the season with Jordan Tayamu and the nasty wideouts, they certainly haven't panned out. And with this likely being their last game of the season, I expect them to come out ready to play. Remember last year, following the injury to starting quarterback Nick Fitzgerald, the Rebels were able to get the job done there. But this year with Nick Fitzgerald back and healthy and the tandem between him and Colin Hill, I expect Mississippi State to get the job done and Nick Fitzgerald ending with a last Egg Bowl victory on his way out from Mississippi State. So then on Friday, we've got Virginia traveling to Virginia Tech. Virginia favored by four there. They're coming off that loss to Georgia Tech in overtime. Virginia Tech also coming off a loss to Miami. Really the story of this Virginia Tech team all year hasn't been the offense, but the defense Bud Foster's defense suffered a lot of injuries and suspensions early, and they never really recovered. Virginia, on the other hand, has won a lot of games just because of their strong defense and ball control style, and I think that's what separates them there and allows them to get the job done. So I've got Virginia Tech pulling off the upset here because I think the offense is going to come out and play and put this one out of Virginia's reach. Then, Oklahoma traveling to West Virginia. Oklahoma favored by a point and a half. West Virginia coming off that loss to Oklahoma State on the road. Oklahoma beating Kansas 50-5-40. to to Certainly the 40 points they allowed to the Jayhawk made them the ire of Texas player Brecken Hager. But Oklahoma all year has just looked slightly better than the Mountaineers. A little bit more well-rounded. The running game between Kennedy Brooks and Kyler Murray and then the pieces they have with Trey Sermon and some of the other guys like CeeDee Lamb, I think is what is going to let the Sooners pull off the victory here in Morgantown. Certainly, though, this could very well be another back-and-forth game, and this could also come down to another two-point conversion. But I've got the Sooners punching their ticket to the Big 12 Championship there, where they'll then take on Texas. Then the Apple Cup, Washington traveling to Wazoo. Wazoo favored by a field goal there. Washington coming off a victory over Oregon State, 42-23. Wazoo hanging 69 on Arizona. And this was after Khalil Tate finally started to look like his former self. I think Wazoo continues to pull off the victory here and gives himself an outside shot of making the college football playoff if they then defeat Utah in the Pac-12 championship game in two weeks. Then on Saturday, we've got the game, Michigan and Ohio State. Michigan favored by four. Ohio State coming off an overtime victory over Maryland. Very much a game they could have lost, but Tyrell Prigham's pass to Deshaun Johnson fell slightly short. Michigan coming off a 31-20 victory over Indiana. And if I'm Karen Higdon right now, I am licking my chops to get myself in the game against this Ohio State defense that has never looked like itself following the departure of Nick Bosa. And so for that reason, I think Harbaugh and could get the job done here. Then Pitt traveling to Miami. Miami favored there. Miami coming off a victory. Miami favored by six and a half there. Coming off a victory over Virginia Tech. Pitt beating Wake Forest 34-13. A question going into this game of whether Pitt starters would play, but Pat Narduzzi said they will, and for that reason, I've got Pitt pulling off the victory here. Even with Onkozy Perry coming off his best game for the Hurricanes, I'm still not sure he can do it on back-to-back occasions. He had a previous monster game against FIU, but then he looked normal the week after that, and I think he comes back to life here, and the Panthers get the job done. Then the Iron Bowl, probably one of the least intriguing Iron Bowls of recent memory. We've got Auburn traveling to Alabama. Alabama favored by 24. Both teams coming off victories over FCF schools in Cupcake Week. And while I do think the Crimson Tide get the victory here, I don't see them covering that 24-point spread. 
They had a 52-point spread against Citadel this last week in which they were unable to cover as well. And then finally, LSU traveling to Texas A&M. A&M favored by 2.5. They're coming off a 40-120 victory over UAB, a team that's going to the Conference West Championship game. LSU coming off a 42-10 victory to Rice. And ever since LSU's wicked hot start, following that loss to Alabama, they've kind of gone under the radar a little bit. This is going to be, in my mind, a battle between Kellen Mond and Joe Burrows. And I think Mond is just a little bit better there, and the Aggies get the job done. So that's it for me today, guys. I'll be back on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, to preview the top group of five football games this week. Similar to the Power Five early fun games this week, as a lot of these conference his championship games will be decided in the next few days. Also, I'll give you my updated Heisman Trophy rankings and why Kyler Murray could be playing not only for a Big 12 championship, but for the Heisman Trophy this weekend. And then I'll continue to discuss the top storylines in college sports, preview the top basketball games of the weekend, and as always, give my thoughts on the latest college football playoff rankings before the conference championship games. So that's it for me today, guys. This is Inside You, the College Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Riotic, and we are signing out. Bye.